Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Herd Mentality, and today I have a very special guest. Me? I'm James David Manning, everybody. I'm the Lord's servant. So excited to have you on. Now, firstly, let's discuss your credentials. You are... A homosexual sodomite. Whoa, I wasn't expecting that. Aren't you friends with Ray Comfort? Who is a sodomite? That's probably not quite right. No, this is the absolute truth. Okay, then. Now, you've been in the media recently. Uh, what else? Gay Star News, I think, was one. And And they wrote an accurate article about what it is that you do. They said that this church is a hate church and that I'm a hate preacher. Now, before we begin, can I offer you a coffee? It was a big article about an investigation into Starbucks using male semen. Ah, well, I'll have mine black. Now I know why I go to Starbucks. And now I know why I avoid it. So my question is, where are they getting all this semen from? That's a great question, James. Are you involved? Don't stutter, because we'll know that you're implicated in the supply chain. I, I, you know, my suspicion is that they're getting this semen from sodomites. Hmm, sounds like you're involved. Tell me, what exactly is semen? My suspicion is, is that semen has the opportunity and it has millions and millions of little zygotes in it. Zygotes in semen? This is even more serious than I thought. You ever go to the doctor and he tells you that, well, I don't want to go there. Well, don't go there. And you bring back the cup. I said don't go there. But the deal is, is this. You're going there. What Starbucks was doing is that they were taking specimens of male semen. Stop. And they were putting it in the blends of their their uh, lattes. You went there. And it flavors up the coffee. Right. You know what cord blood is? No. Well, I don't have time to tell you if you know what cord blood is. Good. Now, you've kindly provided me with a copy of your afternoon agenda. So let's take a look. 2 p.m. you're hanging out with... You know, untoward types. With like-minded people at a coffee shop. The Starbucks is a place where these types frequent and a lot of body fluids are exchanged there. 3 p.m. you'll be... Drinking semen. 3.45. Getting high on the farm. <laughs> Sounds exhausting. And it makes you think you're having a good time drinking that cup of latte with the... With the semen in it. Wish I could join you. 4 p.m. you'll have... Been using sexual fluids... To satisfy your... Sodomite propensity. Gosh. I'm not making this up. So there's no secret about it. You're slipping some of your own testicular extract into your friend's coffees. And so I suppose that they'll be back again and again and again. And why wouldn't they? Well, I guess that you'll be in the media even more now. Because we have stated that Starbucks is ground zero for Ebola. And you wouldn't state this without using facts to back up your claims. That's what my suspicion is. Hmm. James David Manning from Atla World Ministries, thanks for your time. I mean, can you imagine it? And I believe that they were doing that. You know, I, I, you know Coca-Cola got started, at, you know, 100 years ago by using cocaine. They were actually using cocaine. Yes, I have. Yes, satisfied my own. Yes, sick urges, as previously stated. I really liked the way that went down. Although I, uh, I think I may have monologued a bit. Yes. Welcome to the herd mentality, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic, humanistic, and scientific conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them, and they've never met me. But we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection, and God willing. 
entertain you with some scintillating repartee. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, found on Twitter, Facebook and Google+. And it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality. And joining me down the line, I have at Take That Darwin. How are you, sir? I'm doing spectacularly. How are you, Adam? I couldn't be happier. Couldn't be happier to have you on the line so we can retweet some nonsense. Tell me, tell me, whereabouts are you based? Uh, right now, I am uh, in North Carolina on the eastern seaboard of the United States. Moved here just a couple months ago from Ohio. So uh, as far as uh, enlightenment goes, it was a very horizontal move. <laughs> Midwest to the southern United States, not a not a huge deal. Rightio. So tell me, what's the, the premise of your Twitter account? Well, let me give you a, a little bit of, uh, of backstory here to set up our hapless protagonist. I've run a series of Twitter accounts for, for some time, all very, very silly things. While running the, the current but one account, I just happened to say, hey, you know, it might be, it might be funny to kind of riff on this creationist question. I've seen a here and there and make a, make a bit of fun of it. Uh, and then upon actually searching for that, why are there still monkeys question, I discovered that it was ubiquitous. It, it is everywhere. It is inescapable. Maybe two dozen people on Twitter every day I, I can find asking this question, and it is bizarre. Can you tell me the origins of this question? Was this some sort of uh, apologist movement? Well, believe it or not, the first example of, of this question being asked in a recognizable format was from Richard Owen, an 1860 criticism of Origin of Species, which, of course, had just come out the previous year. What he asked was uh, was not, why are there still monkeys? What he asked was, why are there still free-swimming medusa? Because, obviously, they should have evolved into something else by now, right? They should have moved up along the chain. Yeah, you'd think. Um, Richard Owen was a uh, uh, an eminent geologist of his time. Uh, no, I'm sorry, a paleontologist. He, a uh, man who, uh, if I recall correctly, he coined the term dinosaur. So he was not a moron necessarily. Nevertheless, this, this question baffled him. He did not grasp what Darwin was getting at. And people have continued to fail to grasp what Darwin is getting at for the, the <laughs> for next 154 years. 150 years. <laughs> so celebrating 154 years of ignorance, you fashioned this Twitter account. <laughs> I, I did, and, and that is what it is. It is a, a celebration. It is the, the recognition that this sort of brain problem, which can occur even in, you know, otherwise very sensible people, it is something so central to humanity. It is, it is almost precious in its delicacy. What I mean to say is that this is like a, like a, 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 a flower growing from a mountainside that it is it is a thing of that you you have no idea how it is that it remains there you know weathering the the storms as it were of uh, of knowledge because we live in a world where we're bombarded by knowledge how is it possible that this this delicate bit of stupidity manages to remain intact even as it is pummeled on all sides by information hmm so what's your motivation for doing this? Is it just to, is it for your own amusement or are you actually actively seeking to educate and, and train people on the, the wisdom that is evolution and some of Darwin's work? 
uh, it's sick obsession at this point. Make no mistake about it. Uh, there, there was a point where, where I could justify it in, in some other way. But right now, it is, it is a thing that I cannot stop doing, no matter how hard I try. There are people who use my account as a, a sort of a, a dispatcher, um, in order to, to gently try to, to correct the creationists who are asking this question. And, and I, I admire that that is something that they are trying to do, especially if they do so, you know, gently, politely, trying to fix this, this brain problem. Although, uh, that, that really isn't the intent. I think that if I have to put a, a, uh, a real justifiable motivation to this, what I want people to do is see just the swarms of folks who are asking this question and say, I resolve to not be this ignorant. I, I resolve to better myself to the point where I'm no longer humiliating myself in public. Well, yes, there's a degree of public humiliation there. I concur. I must admit, I'm one of those people who keeps an eye on your timeline to, as you say, gently prod. And, you know, somebody asks the, the question, why are there still monkeys? And I always go back in with the if I were to give, provide resources or give you a push in the right direction to understand this question, would you be interested? And it's usually met with radio silence. Or hostility, yes. I, don't, I think it's the way I phrase the question, but I can understand that many others perhaps would <laughs> receive that sort of response. <laughs> so have you had any success over this uh, this period of time that you've been managing this account? Have you managed to convince somebody that, yes, there is more to this than perhaps you saw initially? It really depends on how you define success. That, I think, is a bit of a pipe dream. If you go out with the intent, however noble, to save these creationists from themselves, you are going to be met with just crushing disappointment after disappointment. As far as success goes, I would say that doing this, I have met some wonderful people. I have made some people laugh. I have satisfied my own sick urges, as previously stated, to <laughs> to display uh, a, a bit of a, a freak show on Twitter. So, um, so yes, I have been successful by my own definition of success. Yeah, as far as uh, convincing people that uh, evolution is correct, I have seen it happen from those those folks who who try to gently correct people. Uh, Sandra, the the Play-Doh poem lady, she met some people as uh, I suppose tangentially a result of my having retweeted her, and she is no longer a Christian. She has been convinced of the merits of evolutionary theory. I cannot claim credit for that, though. That was the, all on the the people who were willing to to walk her through the uh, a bit of a, a an education in biology crash course. It is a win for team education overall. However, <laughs> I I would like to hope so. Yes. <laughs> so, what's involved in your account? I mean, do you just search out? Monkeys? Is that just the one key word that you go for? I can lead you through my daily searches, which I repeat, you know. Fantastic. Two, the the 25 words or less, uh, the, the brief synopsis of Take That Darwin's Day. Let's go. <laughs> okay. Pour myself a cup of coffee. Then, uh, evolved monkeys, evolved apes, 
evolution monkeys, evolution apes, and then various combinations of school, teaching, class, teacher, and evolution. And sometimes I mix other things in as well. Just to keep it fresh. Just to keep it fresh. Yes. So, any any thoughts for uh, perhaps spin-off accounts? You know, like the... Uh- <laughs> well, honestly, that has been fairly well nailed down. A theory fail came along eventually, and he is doing just a, a marvelous job. Uh, he does take it upon himself to engage creationists and, and try to help them out and bless him for it. Um, <laughs> but I... I, I don't have the stamina, I'm afraid. Then there's also uh, Take That Earth, Take That NASA, and there's Take That Science came along recently. There's There's been a few that are no longer updated, things like uh, Take That Svante about uh, global warming, uh, Take That Dinos about people who deny that dinosaurs exist. There are those people? Uh, of course there are those people. <laughs> yeah, the, there's really no end to the, the sort of bizarre ideas that you can find out there on Twitter. And there's just something about Twitter that impels people to volunteer their thoughts, no matter how half-formed they are. <laughs> yes, I think we're all victims of that uh, <laughs> to some degree. Look, take that, Darwin. Thank you very much for joining us on the show and sharing your thoughts. Interesting experience. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Hi, this is Corey from the Brainstorm Podcast out of Saskatchewan, Canada. We're a panel show with a group of good friends who discuss current events, philosophy, science, and social issues. On November 22nd, we're recording an episode of Brainstorm with the Executive Director of the Canadian Mental Health Association. In preparation for this episode, and in hopes of providing a substantial donation to the CMHA, I started a Teespring campaign selling t-shirts with the Brainstorm logo on the front and the CMHA Mental Health for All logo on the back. Shirts are $23 plus shipping and 100% of the profits go to support Canadian mental health. Thanks to everyone who's already reserved one. You can reserve yours at teespring.com slash brainstorm and mental health. And check out our website at brainstormblog.net. And joining us down the line is science extraordinaire at Dave Hawks or at Mr. Hawks. How are you, sir? Engage Dr. Dave Hawks. I'm good. You'd think you'd have my Twitter handle down by now. Oh, I would. I'm going to have to put that... I'm going to have to go through all the old episodes, Dave, and find that sting I did for you. Do you remember that sting with the tricorder sound effect? Yes, yes. Yes. Yeah, um, uploading Dr. Hawks, I think it was. Uh, engage. 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 Anyway. Engaged. Anyway. Well, the audience will hear it. Dave, what's new? What What's catchy at the moment? Well, you know, I've been, you know, looking about upgraded things with epigenetics and there's all these interesting science but people keep asking about ebola apparently it's a thing now it's a thing it's trending um, a, a number of people sort of obviously ebola is a big story in the news and it's it's sort of it, it's a really interesting for a whole variety of reasons like as a virus it's fascinating i actually did a little bit on ebola in my phd not the actual virus but if we wanted to look at ebola we could either look at ebola which is like a very dangerous, deadly virus, or we could actually just use sort of one of the proteins from it, stick it on a HIV, and then look at how it reacts, which isn't anywhere near as scary as it sounds. So with Ebola, it's a virus. It's a phylovirus, for those playing along, that has a mortality rate as high as 90%. You may have seen that in the news, Adam. Mm -hmm. The first one was categorized in 1976 on the Ebola River in Zaire, and in that time, up until this year, there'd been about 3,000 deaths. 
Um, and this year, I think we're just passing 5,000 deaths for this year alone. And the reason is very simple. It's a, it's a virus that lives in an animal reservoir. And from what I understand, it's bats, uh, which is actually incredibly common. And it's very cool and probably do a show on it sometime. But it lives in bats. They're in the jungle. And then at some point, it will be exposed to people and people can catch Ebola. And it's the hemorrhagic fever which means essentially your organs sort of go to mush and and you die and within a few weeks. So it's very quick and it's very deadly. So it, which bra- is, it breaks down cell walls? Yeah, pretty much my understanding is like physiology, like I'm interested in the virus, what it actually does. I, I just have a broad brushstrokes approach. But yeah, it's, it's essentially it breaks down the walls and it's hemorrhagic, which means bleeding. And it, essentially it's a very high mortality rate. There's four types of Ebola. One is found in the Philippines that has very, very low mortality, but the other three vary and tend to be in Central Africa. Right. And Um, because bats are mammals, does that play a part in how easily it is transferred? I mean, we're not catching this from reptiles. Even in the time I've been studying viruses become more and more prominent in terms of having mammals as these viral reservoirs. Like you all hear about bird flu and how Birds can have the flu and they can pass it along. And yeah, that's, that's completely true. But you think about mammals, mammals are going to be able to actually transfer viruses that can infect mammalian cells a lot easier. Plus a lot of these animals will carry the virus and it won't be infectious. Like HIV is infectious to humans, but can't infect any other species. Theoretically, an animal could have HIV somehow and then pass it to humans and the animal itself would go along quite merrily. And so bats as a mammal, also as a mammal that comes in contact with humans. And the reason it comes in contact with humans is like there's a virus called Hendra in Australia, uh, up in Brisbane, named after the suburb of Hendra. And it gets into people and horses. It's killed, I think, 14, 15 people, nearly all of them vets or racehorse people because the bats are in trees and then they defecate onto the ground and the horses eat around the grass and they'll often get the virus from the bat droppings. The horses can get infected with it and then the horses are in close contact with people who have contact with horses. It's the circle of life. It is the circle of life or in this case the circle of death and Mm. it's more of a line because humans don't tend to infect bats. So (laughs) it's a line of death. So with Ebola, it comes out of the jungle every so often. Most of the outbreaks are being very small because it's a very containable disease because it's got two things that go against it. Number one, it's really deadly. So it will kill you within, once you show symptoms, within a very short period of time, a week or two weeks. If you look at one of my other favorite viruses, HPV, people can catch HPV and not get cancer for 10, 20 years. Even HIV, you can catch HIV and not show symptoms for for years, and so you can pass the virus around for a long time. Ebola is not like that. It's very short, very sharp. The other thing is Ebola is actually quite difficult to catch. You, It's not airborne. It doesn't really exist for that long outside of the body. So essentially, you have to touch somebody. And pretty much any body fluid, unusually, it's sweat can carry Ebola, hmm. but also pretty much any other one. So it's quite a bit more robust than HIV. Yes. I read something people were... Obviously, I tend to get the the wackaloon end of a lot of the stuff on my Twitter feed, and someone was saying, oh, it could be a biological weapon. And apparently, yeah, you can dry out Ebola, and it can still be infectious. In HIV, you can't do that. It's just pretty much dead. Well, HIV can't be transferred via mosquitoes, for example. Is it possible to do that with Ebola? uh, No. One of the reasons that it can't be done by mosquitoes, I think, is essentially that mosquitoes suck up blood and it goes into the gut. HIV and Ebola are both envelope viruses. They have a lipid envelope around them, and that's not particularly robust. If you leave HIV even in a fridge, within probably a week, it's nearly all dead. 
if you leave some of the other viruses, like one of the other viral vectors I work with called AAV, you can leave it in a fridge for six months and it's still probably pretty good. Um, mm. So they're not very good. You put it in with gut enzymes, it will dissolve it. It's the same that you can't really catch HIV through oral sex mm. um, because, yeah, our gut dissolves it because it's not a particularly robust virus. Gotcha. Now, you mentioned that there's three diff- or four different strains, three of which are an issue with Ebola. How quickly does this mutate? In terms of mutation rate, I don't know. I haven't really seen... There's there's not that much on Ebola because, as I said, it's like it's 3,000 people that are killed in 36 years. So I think I think I looked up the stats. More Americans have been killed in that time watering Christmas lights um, <laughs> than have been killed with Ebola. Right. And because, so, it ha- because it hasn't had such a negative impact on the human race, not a great deal of funding has been put in towards research on it. So it's a bit like male pattern baldness. It kills nobody, so we don't spend a lot of money trying to cure it. Yeah, but male pattern baldness affects a lot of people. Um, and so we do put a lot of money into baldness and baldness treatments. I'm sure what they spend on baldness treatments in Victoria is probably more than they spend annually on Ebola research around the world. Fair For point. exactly that reason, it's like it doesn't affect many people and, you know, there is limited scientific funding. So are you going to tackle a virus that's only in a very small geographical area and only kills 100 people a year? Or are you going to look at things like malaria, which kills millions in that time? Hmm. But the most recent outbreak has been predominantly cultural, so people have got infected with it. And in the area that's come from, from what I've read, one of the traditions is to you wash the body, um, you have the, the body in your home, you wash the body and then you drink the water. Now, obviously, you couldn't come up with a better way to actually transmit Ebola. But there's been other things. There was a woman, a healer, who said she had the cure for Ebola. And so she got all these people to come and she'd give them the cure. And I think she single-handedly infected 200 people with Ebola including herself, and she died. You're right. Generally, you get small outbreaks because what would happen is you'd get an outbreak, you'd have Western medical people just swarm in. Um, like You'd have a, a couple of hundred deaths and you'd probably have almost that many Western medical staff come in and erect barriers. So essentially, if you have a barrier between, if you're wearing gloves and you touch someone with Ebola, as long as you don't, as long as you get rid of the glove the right way, you won't catch Ebola. So you can actually prevent transmission very, very simply. And so essentially people would move in within a few weeks, maybe four, maybe eight weeks, the epidemic was over because they stopped transmission. But through people not actually swarming this particular epidemic, it's sort of, it's got a little bit of a hold. And now that people have hit the panic buttons, you can actually see like the, the infection rate is tapering off, the death rate is tapering off because once you've got people hitting America or American citizens, it started to swarm. It's very labour-intensive, but it's very short duration. So, mm. Listening to The Scathing Atheist, there was an interesting point brought up where they suggested that we infect a different billionaire celebrity every week with Ebola until a, a, <laughs> a cure is found. What advancements are being made in curing this? And how quickly is it coming about now that there's so much uh, more of a pressing need to deal with it? I guess the first thing before I start any of that is, and I know the figures for Australia, it's probably very similar around the world. If you start with a drug that's been tested on animals and shown to work in animals, if you started on the way to becoming a pharmaceutical, it takes roughly 10 years and has a 2% success rate. So this is something that's not going to happen overnight, but it is because there has been money going into Ebola research. So there was the American missionary doctor uh, and there was a nurse, who I, I assume mm. was also a missionary, who got flown back to Atlanta to the CDC and got treated with an experimental drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and they got over Ebola. Now, he thanked God for rescuing him. Naturally. Um, which, 
obviously didn't care about the other 5,000 people, but he was special and unique and it was nothing to do with this experimental drug. I've seen little bits and pieces about vaccines for Ebola and I don't know how, how effective or how true they are and they're trying to get through clinical trials and trying to rush them through. So companies often have this bank of things that's like, oh, they might have a vaccine that's in sort of might have gone through the first stage of a clinical trial, which can be as little as like 20 people. And that's just essentially safety. I actually took place in a took part in a type 1 clinical trial and they inject you the drug and they just check that it doesn't kill anyone. Um, and that's very cheap to run. And then once you get to stage two and to stage three, this is where you involve millions. So yeah. companies might have a whole bunch of drugs that have been tested in type one, uh, stage one clinical trials, but then they lack the money or the sponsorship or the, you know, the, the economic motivation to go further. So now that Ebola is a hot topic and governments are pledging millions and millions and millions of dollars, the drug company will go, okay, then it is worth our wait to actually push forward with this. So that's, where you're hearing a lot of it doesn't mean it's going to happen anytime soon. And with Ebola, most of the treatment is sort of treating the symptoms. So if you can actually get Ebola early and keep people hydrated and, and do all those sorts of things, the, the success rate is actually incredibly high in treated people. Like you, there's not really Americans. There's been a number of Americans who've caught Ebola that are getting over it because they are able to get really high level medical care. And it's also they've been in Ebola areas and so they've been hyper alert for any sort of symptom mm. is, it, so, is it fair to say it's a bit like a brutal flu just with a higher death toll you know you feel yeah, like it's crap short it's sharp and if you can catch it early and you can sort of you know and it's it's something that you know involves heavy medical intervention but if you can catch it early the this the rate for actually death drops through the floor i guess the other thing i'd sort of mention is it does give us a really good opportunity to see some of the woo about ebola I, i've mentioned sort of the christian saying that god had cured him but there's two other points that i found really hilarious there's um a number of essential oils companies have been told to cease and desist claiming that their essential oils can cure ebola and we've seen things homeopaths without borders are trying to raise some money to i don't know exactly what treat use homeopathy for ebola a treat but what uh, now you use yeah. the word treat i'd use the word spread yeah well there's that as well <laughs> but what is fascinating is that Generally, when homeopaths say, well, we can treat, you know, the flu, it's really hard because they say, oh, we claim this person. It's like, well, 200,000 people die of the flu every year. Millions get it. Mm. Ebola, we know how many people have caught Ebola. We know how many people have survived Ebola. And it's in the hundreds up until this year. So it's like, well, if homeopathy has cured someone from Ebola, we can probably get there a name and address exactly for essential oil. So it's... It's one of those things that go, yes, an Ebola can be cured by homeopathy. It's like, okay, who? Who have you actually cured? Hmm. We can actually get names and numbers because it's it's in my lifetime that Ebola has existed. And with a nine, up to a 90% mortality rate and 3,000 deaths, you can kind of go, even if you drop it down, it may be 1,000 people in the world before this year have survived Ebola. So hmm. we can actually track them down and ask them which ones took homeopathy <laughs> or essential oil. So I find that hilarious because it's like, oh. No, we, we can test this. We can check this. Yeah. We can honestly say there is nobody who has ever been cured of Ebola with homeopathy in the history of the world. And the other one was the apocalypse. There's, there's a number of very far right Christian groups in America that are saying that Ebola will become airborne and lead to end times. I think. Mm -hmm. Have you heard that? Oh, <laughs> one of any number of claims they've made. For Ebola, so Ebola will become airborne and that would lead to the end times. So what they're saying is that Ebola will evolve. Mm -hmm. So the only way for them to have their very far-right extreme Christian end times is for evolution to be true. 
which is confusing. Um, and you would say counterintuitive. So, yeah, evolution is apparently the sign of the end times. How awkward would it have been to have those two bats on the ark, both with the bowler? But yeah. <laughs> it, wouldn't have li- it would have been a very short trip, I would think. <laughs> Let's move swiftly along. You've got some news from The Lancet. As hopefully most of your... Uh listeners would be aware i ran a crowdfunding project last year called name the virus which was incredibly successful and i, I certainly know a number of your listeners uh, donated to the campaign and i'm very thankful to them we've named our first virus so it's called p sling uh, by a dr norbert golden and mm-hmm. we've got a couple of other viruses we're naming in the next two weeks um, and one of them is going to be called the punching man um <laughs> Right. Because all of them have to start with a P, and one of the donors realized that his name was an anagram of Punching Man. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I've got approval for that. It took a little bit of explaining, but yes, the Punching Man virus will be around. And so I got contacted through Martin Rees, who's a, a researcher in New South Wales running crowdfunding. Mm-hmm. Um, he's trying to raise, I think, $20,000 um, for his research through a thinkable.org. So if you, anyone wants to donate, please go and check him out. He's not the Lord Astronomer of the UK. It's just the same name. And he got in contact with Mel Thompson, another one of your uh, your previous guests. Yes, and we myself. like Mel. Mm. This journalist from The Lancet interviewed us and then she wrote an article. And so there was a multi-page article in The Lancet, which is, you know, it's a cute little medical journal, probably one of the top three in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I got into The Lancet. Fantastic. It wasn't and a peer-reviewed study that got you there. It was uh, other achievements. <laughs> Yeah, well, the thing is, I actually use it as a teaching aid because um, I teach students about things that appear in, you know, peer-reviewed journals and how not everything in a peer-reviewed journal is peer-reviewed. And now I can give this article from The Lancet saying, well, you know, this is in a peer-reviewed journal, but it's not peer-reviewed science. But stop trying to shit on my donut. Um, <laughs> it, it is... Uh, it's very cool. And so a number of quotes in there. And, and she was very excited because a lot of the crowdfunding is to do with stuff that's very applicable to diseases. So someone might be doing, you know, Mel's Hips for Hipsters was about trying to prevent infections on hip transplants. Mm. Um, mine was just really basic science. It's like the stuff with Ebola. It's like you're studying it so that you can understand it. And it might not have a direct application in the next two or three years, but at some point you might need it. Like we've got papers coming out on multiple sclerosis, um, cardiovascular research, and a number of others involving viral vectors. So it's quite, quite cool. My institute was very happy to be in The Lancet. And then they they did a podcast. So The Lancet News for September the 19th, from about the six and a half minute mark, they, they've interviewing the journalist and she's talking about the, the research of, of Mel and myself. And she describes crowdfunding as great for sort of high risk cutting edge research. and But also audience engagement, surely. Yeah, I mean, audience engagement is part of it. But I guess what they're looking at is in terms of they were sort of comparing, contrasting with, you know, shrinking medical research funding. Like in Australia, our grants for the National Health and Medical Research Council has just come out. And two years ago, it was about 20% of grants got funded. Now we're under 15%. So only one in seven gets funded. And the result is a lot of medical researchers will leave the field. I know several people who are shutting, experienced researchers are shutting their lab. Mm. And this is sort of where they're looking at crowdfunding from. And they're sort of saying, you you won't replace a $500,000 multi-year grant with a crowdfunding project. But for the sort of the high risk, high reward, really innovative stuff, this is what it's good for. And the examples of high risk, innovative science were penicillin, mm-hmm. which is, this is what they're comparing our research to. So I'm being my stuff has been compared to penicillin, so I'm feeling pretty good about myself That's not at this bad, point. Dave, you're up there with mold. Thank you, <laughs> dude. Really? Come on. Um, and then this. the this. other one she gave was Viagra. 
I'm not sure how we got to the two two of the leading, you know, innovative projects in mankind are penicillin yeah. and Viagra. But you like are it. up there. Yeah, I'm literally. <laughs> standing to attention. Saluting the sun. I think it's fantastic. Like, I'm not sure I'll do crowdfunding again in the near future. It's, it's a lot of work and I do a lot of research. And so, th- there's only so much time I have to devote for it. But it's great to see a lot of people really taking it on and making it their own and more and more medical research crowdfunding popping up. Exactly how far it will go, I don't know. But sort of for that ten to $30,000 project, which will, I mean, my name, the virus, has paid for nearly all my viral research this year. So, it's nearly a year's worth and we've made three viral vectors, uh, brand new viral. We've actually made a couple more, but I'm trying to only name the really cool ones, mm-hmm. the, not the sort of the ones that are just the controls. So, this has kept us going for nearly a year. It obviously doesn't pay my salary. Interesting to see where it will go. And it's great that we're being acknowledged in, obviously, one of the top journals in the world. That is fantastic news. Dave, well done. And we'll look forward to having you back on to talk some more science in the future. Thanks very much for having me on. Hopefully, um, we can sort of get into something a bit more uh, humanistically and secular next time. Let's have a crack. Thanks, Dave. All right. See ya. Herd mentalists, hear me. Questionable Adam here from the year 2014. Yes, the year that Raif Badawi will begin receiving his 600 lashes for blasphemy, a victimless crime. You'd think that given it's the year 2014, this sort of nonsense would have been dealt with by now, but uh, clearly it hasn't. Rife has contacted me with a single message. Hashtag stop lashing Rife. So first and foremost, please use this hashtag across your social media feeds. Rife is a hero and must be saluted. He's currently in prison whilst his wife and children wait for his 600 lashes to take place. I've been made aware that the Saudi Arabian authorities monitor these hashtags. Please let them know that the world is watching. There have been cases where pardons have been given in the past with enough pressure, so with enough noise, this would be a step in the right direction. Hashtag stop lashing rife, R-A-I-F. And joining me down the line from Queensland, I have at Jesse Richardson, J-E-S-S-E. How are you, sir? I'm very good. How are you, Adam? Very well, thank you. Now, whereabouts are you? I'm in Brisbane at the moment, I'm sitting underneath some Blackhawk helicopters, no doubt, and some drones and okay. some other surveillance equipment, I'm sure. Right. Well, I might have to edit the sound effects in. Your microphone isn't picking that up. Make it sound a little more dangerous than it really yeah, is. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a pretty um, interesting place to be at the moment, I think, but most of the world's leaders here. <laughs> Fantastic. And uh, are they there for some logical chit-chat? I don't know how um, rationally inclined they'll be, depending on who exactly they are. Putin, in particular, doesn't appear to be too amenable to reason at the moment. Who can say? It's going to be an interesting, an interesting event, no doubt. <laughs> yes, it will. So, Jesse, what's what's thrown you into um, the spotlight when it comes to logic and critical thinking? You may remember me from such shows as um, yourlogicalfallacies.com, a website that I launched a couple of years ago. I'll give you a little bit of background to it. I was um, teaching my kids fallacies. As a result of that, I put together a poster for them to hang up in their in their bedroom. And I thought, well, this would be a nice sort of thing to share with the world at large. Um, so I put up a Creative Commons website at yourlogicalfallacies.com 
where anyone can link anyone to any logical fallacy that they have to be committing online, which is something that I'm sure most rational skeptics and atheists have done at some point in their life more than once. And I have too. But what I found was that a lot of the fallacies that I was linking people to were quite verbose kind of walls of text. And so the idea was to make it a much more simple and succinct and perhaps a little bit more engaging and amusing and visually interesting um, way to spread the good word about fallacies and logic more generally. Yeah. Look, this website has tens of thousands and uh, millions, in fact, visitors. Yeah. I think it's up to, it's almost 4 million people have visited this site thus far, about 10,000 a day. Yeah, but- it went a bit nuts though. So, <laughs> kind of wasn't expecting it to go as big as it did. It got tweeted by Stephen Fry and um, PZ Myers and Ben Goldacre and Aaron Dr. Carl amongst um, many others. And front paged on Reddit a couple of times and was featured on Boing Boing and Upworthy and a few other places. Um, so yeah, it went really big, which is fantastic, you know, and um, I think probably most awesomely it's now being used in many thousands of schools all around the world. Now that the is poster good is news. being for that. Yes, so well, very, very cool. I have yeah. a poster. It's got some Plato, some Socrates, some Aristotle on there. So give us an example of one of the logical fallacies that you have on here. Well, What's your favorite? Probably I like the false cause one, which is an appropriation of flying spaghetti monster law with presuming that a, a real or perceived relationship between things means that one is the cause of the other. Um, correlation is not equal causation, as we're all um, quite familiar with, I'm sure. So the example on the side is pointing to a fancy chart. Roger shows our temperatures have been rising over the past few centuries, whilst at the same time the number of pirates have been decreasing. Thus, pirates cool the world and global warming is a hoax. So it sort of takes the opportunity to take the piss out of illogical arguments that rear their ugly heads all around the world all the time as a way of not only teaching about fallacies, but also helping to sort of educate about um, some of the things that are perennial problems of illogic and incoherency. Mm, It's very Vulcan. So what are you doing to increase the number of pirates globally? Well, not much at the moment, and I have been criticised for that, So, um, (laughs) which is probably a fair criticism too. I'm I'm actually more of an armchair philosopher rather than one of those more practical ones. So it's, um, and I've pontificated on that and decided not to do anything about it. So (laughs) this website is, as you say, many of the people who listen to the show will have already encountered it, but it's a wonderful, concise mechanism by which to demonstrate your point and be able to link someone you're having a discussion with, because typically, uh, the bulk of this audience is on Twitter or, or other social media, perhaps where you've got space constraints. So you're able to head over to the website, pick a logical fallacy that the other person may have committed, say, anecdotal, appeal to nature, uh, bandwagon, all, all these fallacies are up there, and they each have their own website with a, descri- yeah. a brief description. You just copy and paste that, and that gives the other person a brief synopsis of perhaps where they're going wrong. Exactly. So the, the the idea was that URL sort of becomes a function of communication itself. So your logical fallacy is .com forward slash slippery slope or whatever the fallacy might be demonstrates what it is that's going on in the first place. But it's also in attempting to simplify things down and make them very clear. Part of the aim of this as well is to, we often preach to the choir within the atheist and rationalist community, but what we really want to be doing is spreading the um, rational word further afield so that, you know, people who have perhaps not encountered this kind of thinking before have a more clear, easy, succinct and engaging way to understand it instead of it just being something that they have a reactive, you know, sort of reaction to and dismiss it out of hand as, you know, just being a little bit too verbose or academic or, you know, book learning Hmm. that they're not particularly interested in. So interestingly as well is that it needs to be the fallacy fallacy is one of the fallacies up there as well, which is presuming that a fallacy has been committed. 
that the claim that someone is making itself must be wrong, which is also logically incoherent, <laughs> because you can argue for something that is an entirely valid point and use a fallacy in its service. And conversely, you can argue for something which is entirely false and have an entirely coherent argument. So fallacies aren't the be-all and end-all of argument and critical thinking, but it's it's wise to be aware of them and to also educate people more generally about them to increase and the level of debate publicly and otherwise. Mm. Oh, look, I'm sure... I'm confident that I make all of these fallacies at some point. <laughs> and I'm, I'm learning, I'm getting better, but I'm sharing this resource with other people. And, and you've been able to do all of this basically on a shoestring and spread the good word to classrooms around the world. It's really demonstrated a point that by making something accessible, easily digestible, you're able to spread it quickly and effectively. That's right. Yeah. It's, I mean, within educational spheres, especially the idea that things have to be exhaustive and, you know, have to be kind of boring and didactic is something that's just accepted. But if we make things engaging and simple and fun, it's a hell of a lot more likely that people are going to want to engage with it and, you know, maybe accidentally learn something at the same time. Um, and that's something my background is in advertising and marketing. So um, the <laughs> skills I've learned there is something that I've, I've been able to apply to this sphere. And that sort of set me on a bit of a different path in life, actually. Yeah, well, you and I share a little bit in common there in terms of being able to smell our own marketing nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> As it Quite. Were. When you understand this, these fallacies, you're able to be a better liar? Is that, is that Yeah. Well, you can be. I mean, you can use your powers for good or evil, right? And mm. um, I suppose that, you know, um, working within within advertising, there's certainly some very ethically dubious things that I've been privy to. But as well, you know, you, you learn what constitutes effective communication. And you can see, you know, on a financial level, that this kind of communication is a hell of a lot more effective than that kind of communication. Whereas when we're talking in an abstract sense or when we're in an educational context, there's not those same objectives and outcomes and KPIs that, quantify exactly how and why communication is more effective than another. And so we can hold on to extremely ineffective modes of communication for decades without them ever being revised. And so my contention is that the site that we've put together, eulogicalfallacies.com, sort of demonstrates the point that if we actually make education fun and engaging, perhaps it might be a little bit more effective. And especially in terms of critical thinking, will allow that sphere of influence to be a lot more effective. Mm. I strongly encourage people, if you're using the website, then to support it, head over there because you're able to either download it as a PDF and print it off yourself or you can do as I did and spend all of about, oh, it was about 20 or 30 earth dollars and I've got a beautiful cardboard thou shalt not commit logical fallacies poster up on the wall here in the herd mentality recording dungeon. So get your hands on a copy. It was funny, actually, you know, Adam, because I, when I first um, launched the site, I was like, well, I have to balance out my ethical karma from having worked in advertising for the last 20 years. <laughs> and so I made the whole thing like Creative Commons and free and, you know, just want to do good in the world. And the feedback I got from people was, that's really great, but I just spent 90 bucks at Kinko's in the States, you know, um, printing a poster. Um, why don't you do a, you know, an offset run of it so that, you know, you can offer them for a bit cheaper. So. What it ended up happening is that I just did exactly that and printed some, which means that I can sell them to people for, you know, a little bit more than cost price and um, money that I make out of it helps take care of all of the overheads and costs yeah, and whatnot as well, costs. which is great. Hmm. So moving on from that, you've moved on to a new project. Yes. So we um, just recently, I gave a um, talk at TEDx Brisbane about critical thinking more generally and that we need to teach children how to think 
not what to think. And I sort of like was a, a bit of an epiphany I had some years ago now that most of what I was attempting to do, arguing with people on the internet who are wrong um, <laughs> and, you know, attempting to, you know, have political influence and all these sorts of things that it, I'm sure a lot of people identify with that it feels a bit futile sometimes, you know, you feel like you're banging your head against a brick wall. And so I was reflecting on that and thinking, well, you know, what is it that's actually going to make a difference in the world? And the conclusion that I came to that I think a lot of people come to at some point is that really we need to teach children how to think, not what to think, because it's really difficult trying to convince an adult to not just change their mind about a particular thing, but to be receptive to the idea that they might be wrong generally as a, as a kind of meta-level um, self-awareness, um, precept of, of how they go about their lives. If we teach children how to think, then that has a flow-on effect that solves so many of the problems that we encounter in the world, I think. And so that's become a focus of mine. And so I was talking about that at TEDx, and that was um, essentially served to help launch a project. I launched it a, a few weeks before the TEDx talk uh, at um, schoolofthought.org. And schoolofthought.org is essentially what I'm, I'm sort of devoting my life to now. I'm stepping out of advertising and trying to do good in the world. And this new project is a way that I'm attempting to do what we did for the Fallacies Project, but on a much bigger scale for all of um, critical thinking, philosophy, ethics, and reason. Fantastic. So what's the next step with it? That's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> At the moment, we're um, collaborating with some academics and some creative people. So um, Peter Allerton from the University of Queensland is heading up something called the Critical Thinking Project um, up here, and we're collaborating with him, and we're um, talking to some other people as well. But what we're actually attempting to do is is to crowdfund it and to get corporate sponsorship for the project so that we can develop um, resources that teach critical thinking and creative thinking to kids and make them freely available online. So School of Thought International is a registered charity and not-for-profit organization, and we're attempting to get some funding for it so that we can start creating resources and launch the site in the hopefully not-too-distant future. All this stuff's really beneficial. I often say this. When somebody arrives at a decision themselves, it's a more meaningful decision for them. So, Absolutely, not, not yeah. just yelling at them, hey, you're wrong and this is why, but if you can give them the steps in order yeah. to make that decision themselves. Uh, and I'll give you an example, mm -hmm. right? I, I spent some time on a floor selling washing machines. It's part of what I do outside of this podcast. And in Australia, we are backwards and third world and we wash our clothes in cold water by and large. And that's a result of a marketing campaign by a company called Cold Power or the brand Cold Power. So yes. pe people perceive that this detergent is some sort of miracle detergent that works in cold water. Now, the reality is, is a detergent is a bunch of enzymes that bond to fat and to water. And every 10 degrees up you go, thereabouts, Celsius, you double the efficiency of that chemical reaction. So people have this objection, washing in warm water is going to stretch the elastic or it's going to make the colours run. So here's, right. how I, yeah. here's how I pitch it to people. I ask them, okay, do you wash in hot or cold water? And they usually say cold. Then I'll say to them, do you wash your dishes in hot or cold water? And they, yeah. they stop, they scratch their head and they go, oh, well, hot. I say, why? Yeah. Why is that? And they say, because the detergent works. So following that school of thought, why do you mm. abuse your clothes? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and then they've internalized the thinking themselves. And you're right. That's a really powerful differentiation between having someone tell you what is wrong. You know, and I think that if, if you can foster the conditions for which people come to their own conclusions like that, it tends to be a lot more effective. You're absolutely right. So how can people help with this schoolofthought.org? 
project. Well, essentially, if you if you head over to schoolofthought.org and just check out, um, there's the, the TEDx talks that I gave us up there, and there's a donation drive thing and options to share and whatnot. And if you believe in this kind of idea that we need to teach to the next generation how to think, not what to think, your support would be very much appreciated. And yeah, we're hoping to launch in the states and elsewhere with a bit of a bang in the coming months as well. So um, yes, I'm very very optimistic and excited at the moment. It's it's quite an interesting time. Yeah, so watch out, Texas. They're coming for you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Fantastic. Actually, I think my server is hosted in Texas, so, yeah, we're already oh, kind of there. Yeah. <laughs> it's gonna, they're going to be bombing it like an abortion clinic any time now. Yeah. <laughs> Very possibly so. Look, Jesse, I'll put the links to this in the show notes, so people go and check it out if you're listening on an iPod or, or in Stitcher. The show notes will be on that particular episode which is episode 77. Jesse, thank you very much for coming on. It's been great. I'd love to have you back on again. Oh, beautiful. Thank you very much, Adam. Take care. Bye. Herd mentalists, hear me. Questionable Adam here from the year 2074, contacting you via whatever quantum methods were used in filming the movie Interstellar. Back in the year 2014, John, Andrew, Alec, Joel, John without an H in his name, Jonas and Susan all supported the show by visiting patreon.com slash herdmentality or, or via a one-time PayPal payment at herdmentalitypodcast.com. By offering just a few dollars an episode, they've helped inch towards the goal of making Raygate the musical. They're also entitled to a suite of rewards, such as a drawing of a silly cow posted out to them by past me. These wonderful types have also helped Yasmin in Jordan to pay her higher education costs as 10% of the proceeds from the show go to helping women in education. I'm thrilled with how the listeners of the show are getting on board by joining the Herd Mentality lending team at Kiva.org. The team has loaned $375, an average of one loan per member. This is fantastic work. Now, I must run. Christopher Nolan is pursuing me for using sound effects without permission. Ta-ta!